I'm carrying on this evening from Pascal's yesterday's evening talk. <laughs> this is kind of a continuation, but it's also a slightly different entrance because my journey in was slightly different. And so I'm going to begin it by describing some of the pieces as they fell into place along the way I proceeded in my things I understood and things that began to make sense for me. So it's slightly autobiographical initially. And so by way of introducing that, <coughs> as a child, my upbringing situation was reasonably benign slash neglectful. You know, it was comfortable, bucolic setting, cottage, village, countryside, four acres of food and Jersey cows, I mean, really very pretty. One sibling who, for reasons of her disabilities, was never going to be a companion or friend. A completely neglectful, ignoring, benign, sweet father who never spoke to me, and a mother who was strict, but caregiving, you know, as cared for and safe, nothing chaos, chaotic or weird, but strict to the point of anger, so I was afraid. So I was lonely. So, but you know, safe, it wasn't, it wasn't anything scary, like, you know, it wasn't drug abuse or things, you know, that were too shaky. But nevertheless, it wasn't friendly, and it wasn't fun. And, um, and I had no friends, I had no other than these two parents and sibling to actually relate to, so I didn't have any laps to go to, so it wasn't warm. Setting was great, health was fine, you know, all the basics were fine. And, uh, and so I learned young, because I also was energetic and physical and bright, I always had a lot of energy that I could do stuff. And so the doing of things was my way of convincing myself that I was fine and I was worthwhile, you know. So I was achieving and climbing trees, and not just climbing them, but climbing them as many and as fast and as high as I could to prove, you know, it was always about proving. That was my particular coping mechanism with the insufficiency of happiness, let's say. Not misery, but not happy. Okay, so fast forward, you know, 30 years, and I found myself meditating. And lucky for me, I think, or maybe it just would never have taken. My f well, my first meditation experiences were um, in a tradition of devotion, and it was a Sikh guru, an Indian um, Sikh guru. Some of you know this. And there were two parts to the meditation. One was what you did, which was say the Simran, repeat the phrases, which I was good at that because I could do that. And then the next part was, that was 45 minutes, and then for the next hour and a quarter, you were supposed to merge with the guru on the inner plane, so at least have some sense of light that you could turn into the form of the guru that you could love. Well, that you don't actually do that. It's supposed to happen. So I was all confounded by that because I couldn't do that part. And I even went to India and met the guru and the whole ashram. It was lovely, actually. And it was all so devotional. Everybody loved this. Well, I couldn't do love, you know. I didn't know how to do that part. And I didn't actually love this person. He was fine but that part wasn't happening, you know. <laughs> and so I realized devotion wasn't quite my thing. Plus, I didn't really 
It wasn't easy for me to trust and love, you know, I hadn't learned that. And so I decided that devotional practices wasn't my thing. And so fast forward another little bit of time where I actually had a family and moved to Salt Spring and found myself at a, a Vipassana retreat taught by a colleague of Goenka, a Burmese woman. And um, the first retreat or two, I was nursing a very broken heart, actually, so I didn't listen to a word that was said, but I just had enough in my meditation background for three or four years of this other thing that I knew at least how to focus my attention inside myself. So that began. And then I started going to retreats, listening to the tapes of Goenka. A lot of you know this. And Goenka's style was do this, do this, put your attention here, watch this, stay here, move this, go this, watch this. It was very, and do it, do it, and work, work, work. Well, that's fantastic for me. So I did it, you know. <laughs> I was really a good student, you know, and I did that. Eight years I did that. Ten of those ten-day retreats. And, uh, and pretty quickly I wasn't listening to what he said. Partly I was bored because it was the same tape each time, you know, each retreat you had the same set of tapes, videotapes. And partly because after having heard it once, I just, anyway, I, it wasn't very inspiring, so I didn't actually listen to the Dharma explanations. I can't tell you what was said. I can remember like three things. But I did the doing part. So that's what I, my focus was, this concentrating, focusing my attention. So that was kind of my foundation, really. Then I encountered Western teachers and began to hear the Dharma actually in language that was fresh to me and was much more my idiom and my, you know, from colleagues, from people who are the same age and been through the same 60s thing that I had been through and all this. And so I began to go, that's exactly what I, that's what I feel like. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's how it works for me. So it was a validation rather than a learning. It was more like that makes complete sense. And that's, yeah, when I can look, I can see that that's what a hindrance is. Yes, it felt like that. So I never asked questions, and I wasn't really even interested in the theory part because I was so focused on doing it. So I kept on doing and, um, and getting more. One of the big benefits in my life, even during the, the Goenka-type years where I didn't really know what I was doing, just like gathering myself, was this growing steadiness this centeredness, this sense of being much more grounded so that when life happened, which of course it did, I wasn't so tossed around by it. I wasn't so caught in and irritated by and defending. You know, I was just able to somehow have it go through me more, be much more flexible and much less toppled around. And that was fantastic. That was the big benefit for me mostly. And I was a single mother and I had a difficult relationship with my mother who'd now moved out to England even though I'd moved away from all of that. It followed me. And, and then um, and I was an illegal midwife and I was, you know, had no money. And, you know, it was all challenging, young woman life. Anyway, um, sometime in there, this is now, we're into the 90s, because I was able to do the concentrating and that's what I've been focusing on for now 15 years or something, um, one of the things that began to happen is I began to see, as uh, Pascal was talking about the other night, I began to see things coming and going, the beginnings and endings, and everything started to get very unstable and flickery. And I was, I was insecure. I was still a strivey doer, type A achiever, and I had a certain amount of steadiness, but I didn't have any understanding. And I 
I hadn't really, I don't know what I'd learned. But anyway, this is just the way it unfolded for me. Um, I was able to get very calm. But there was no pleasure, joy, light, any, any of that. It was all just do it and keep doing it. And where am I? Am I doing it right? And where am I on the path? And sort of you know, wanting to assess myself, I guess, was there. And somewhere towards the end of the 90s, I began doing long retreats. My son grew up old enough that I now didn't have to be there. Well, I could now go away and do longer retreats. I started to do six-week and three-month three retreats. And one of those I heard, which blew my socks off, some of you know this, I heard from Guy Armstrong, you know, the secret to concentration, and somehow I thought concentration was it. I was, because that's what, the style I'd been doing, I just believed this was more concentration than the better, you know, and somehow it would all take care of itself. I didn't really understand about looking and seeing or receiving or any of those things at all. It was just do, 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 strive, strive, strive. And, and I heard him say, well, of course, the secret to concentrating, you know, is relaxation. And I'm like, what? <laughs> You're kidding me. <laughs> What have I been doing for the last 15, 16, I don't know how long. Oh, what? No, so that was like, oh my Lord. So I had to unlearn kind of this lifelong striviness, you know, which had served me relatively well. I got things done, you know. And so that was a big shock and I didn't quite know how to deal with it. But anyway, for the next two or three years I was sort of in this when I go into retreat I'd be very unstable because everything was breaking up around me and my attention and yet I was trying to relax but I didn't know what to do about it because it was all so chaotic and I was like what am I supposed to do and so that I was still a bit floundery this is in the 90s and then um, I went and did a retreat in uh, at Gaia House in England a four-month retreat where I learned the jhanas practice with Christina Feldman and this was profound for me because you can't do it. <laughs> I mean, you sort of, I tried to do it, of course. <laughs> and, um, but sooner or later, I began to realize that the doing is in the way of being present because the striving is cluttering it all up. And so I really was able, because I had this long time, to settle and to relax and to see that relaxing was actually what concentrating was about. It was relaxing the trying, relaxing the judging, relaxing the, and the next, and tr you know, the getting somewhere, and the being ahead of myself, all those strivey things, which many of you, I know I'm not the only striver in the room. Um, and so little by little, the whole system calmed down. And it hadn't ever been able to calm down. Even though I'd got quite quiet, and I'd seen a lot of, changing going on the whole system was still tense and still you know leaning forward and grasping and so it began to go quieter and quieter inside because of this peacefulness that was coming and as the chattering and the come on come on come on voice was getting quieter and quieter what emerged into that more spaciousness was this friendliness oh and in the 90s somewhere in that period where I was I'd heard relaxing, you're kidding. I was also listening to the beginning of the offerings of Metta. And it was awful for me because I couldn't do it. And I couldn't do it right. And I couldn't make myself be friendly. And I, 
I, you know, I didn't have benefactors because I didn't have enough laps. My mother wasn't a benefactor. I was scared of her. My father never spoke to me. My sister was never, I never had a conversation really that was useful and nobody else. So like, poor me, strive, strive. That was kind of the mood, right? And so um, that was really, it brought the opposite up for me. Practice trying to do those phrases. I didn't like the phrases. They didn't work, you know, like I was very stuck in the doing of it. I couldn't access what it was all about at all. <clears throat> and so then I had that experience that I've mentioned so many times, and I'm sure I already referred to it here, was in this time of beginning to quieten down, deeply quieten down, and this nagging push, come on, come on, striver was taking a back seat, finally, was when that little friendly voice came up. It's like, it's all right. You know, you're doing fine. You're doing quite well, actually. You know, you're really quite a nice person. That thing that I mentioned, this kind of, did I mention it to everybody here? You know what I'm talking about? And it was, it was unbelievable because I'd never heard a voice like that, externally or internally, quietly encouraging, friendly, accepting, not judging, not pushing. You don't have to do more than this. You're already doing a good life. You know, it's like, oh, wow. It was, rad it was simple. It, wasn't, it was just like a pep talk. You know, went on for 45 minutes, but it was radical in its quality that it was so different. Of course, it was my own attitude changing because it was finally my nervous system was calming down. So then things got very interesting because as the calming really happened, this friendliness was able to be there. I didn't do it and I didn't remember it and I didn't try. It was one of those magical moments when the practice does it for you. But the thing that was, I'll never forget it, was that the feeling was one of being nourished. Not from getting anything, but from enough already being nourished. That was, nothing had ever happened like that for me before. And that feeling of being more satisfied, because I was okay. I could kind of feed on the fact that I was okay instead of be hungry about the fact that I wasn't good enough you know, the difference, was so, um, it filled me in a way. And in that being then filled more, instead of this endless emptiness and this hungry ghost it's called, the next sitting, literally the very next sitting, I was so peaceful, like it was like so deeply concentrated. It was absolutely effortless. That was what's remarkable, effortlessness, you kidding? And I really saw, and then it's happened again and again, that the feeling of, of, um, that was being given to me by giving myself a sense of okayness, by befriending myself, not that I was exactly doing it, but this attitude was like, it's okay, it's okay, reassuring, was nourishing something that was endlessly hungry. And the nourishing was what was soothing and allowing the system to trust, really, so it came definitely from feeling more satisfied, from being fed. And so that then snowballed. And um, at different times, different situations, I began to actually give myself permission to enjoy. And then this is somewhere in here, and I don't know the years and it doesn't matter, but somewhere along the line I learned in the next little while, the next, within the next year or two or something, I learned, remarkable, and this 
I mean, these are just maybe useful things for you all. I learned that I didn't deserve to be happy. And so I was going to get to freedom, or whatever the journey's end was supposed to be, by working and earning it. And I, it wasn't, enjoyment wasn't the deal. That was somehow didn't even enter into the equation. I didn't deserve to be happy about it. I just was going to get there by gritting my teeth. That was kind of the story of my life I hadn't realized. And so I began to say, I can enjoy it. You know what? You know, like pleasure is okay. <laughs> you know, I was never very indulgent. I, did, I wasn't like, you know, a hair shirt kind of person. I wasn't that. I mean, I had done my share of drugs and had a good time, you know, and knew how to laugh. <laughs> but nevertheless, the deep belief of pleasure being actually valuable, it sort of was cheating or a little bit of a timeout kind of thing, didn't really come into my consciousness. And so, with the help of a teacher um, very dear to me, um, I began to revisit meditation, concentration practice, jhana practice, and spend time in the beginning or early phases of it where one can access, when the mind gets quiet, these qualities of piti and sukha, they're called. The, the qualities of sweetness, qualities of delight, qualities of pleasantness, qualities of uh, softness which to me were completely radical, like striving people and, you know, grimness and stuff. There's none of that. And uh, it was like, it was, a, it was wonderful. Um, and it was unbelievably soothing and unbelievably nourishing. And then to actually be encouraged, not just given permission, but encouraged to play around. Like, And then I had some wonderful times meditating where not just fun and not just pleasure, but what the effect was, that this is what was so meaningful and where I'm going with this talk, is that um, my, lit my whole self, my whole sense of inside myself was filling and filling. And in the filling was softening and relaxing and what was happening was I was becoming more and more and more empathetic and loving. Whereas when I was busy with my agenda, striving, trying and striving and pushing, it was all about me getting what I was getting. And I wasn't that loving. I mean, I was never mean. I, had been a, I was already a midwife. I was a mother. You know, I was a reasonably nice person. But my focus hadn't been on empathy. It had been on getting the goal, doing the job, getting it done, pushing myself, proving and um, for instance, there was a time on a retreat, within these next two or three years, again, I went to Guy House quite a lot in those days, there was a, uh, it's surrounded by fields, it's right in the countryside, the rolling green countryside and the hedgerows, patchwork, that classic patchwork English countryside thing of Devon, mm -hmm. which I find unbelievably beautiful, which is one of the reasons why I like going there to practice, because it was my childhood, it was the part that was nice of my childhood. And, um, and so there would be different fields and in, there would be um, a few woods in some of these fields and then there'd be cows in this field and then a, you know, hay growing in this field and then different things like this and sheep were in this field, some horses in that field. It was like those drawings you see of you know, children's books. It was exactly like that. It is like that. And, uh, and so over here was this, this cows in this field and I would look at them all. You know, I'm very visual and I loved it. So I'd, in my walking, I'd go outside, I'd look at them all and I, had, you know, I knew what, who was in what fields and where were the young sheep and where were the rams and you know, the, all this when they were separating the sheep and the lambs and everything. Anyway, 
So this day I could see that there were these couple of cows in one field next door to the rest of the flock, the herd. And as I watched these two, they went down and up and down and up and down the hedgerow and then they found a hole in the hedgerow and they ran to the others. And it was early in the morning and I assumed they'd been in the other field all night and they'd gone through a hole in the hedge and they'd been alone all night and they were rejoining the herd and the herd was welcoming them back. And it was the dearest thing, and they ran together, and the ones in the front were putting their noses out, and these new ones returning ran right up, and they were like kissing with their noses, and I was like pouring tears. I was like, yay, you're home again. You know, I was like thrilled. That much goo, you know, was just unbelievable for a striver. It was like this talk about empathy, you know, the quivering of the heart, little things like that. I had another little thing like that. It was um, November the 5th, and in England, November the 5th is Guy Fawkes Day, and it's bonfire day, and they have bonfires and fireworks. It's kind of a, you know, it got moved over politically from Halloween time, but it's right next door to Halloween. That's the, their version of celebration, and there's bonfires, and there's, there's fireworks. And so my room was an upstairs room facing southwards over the fields, and up and over about five fields away is a little village, little, t- little the one place you can go to get your sweets in your sweet shop, you know, so you can go get your toffee or whatever your thing is, chocolate. Anyway, there was a little, this little village, and, and there was a school there. And um, it turned out that particular New Year's uh, bonfire night that a lot of other kids from a lot of other schools came to this. Primary children had come to this school because they had made a fundraiser, and they had the bonfires, and they had the fireworks, so there was a big fundraiser for the school. So there's a ton of kids there which I didn't know, except that I could hear a little bit these children's voices. And I got to see the fireworks display in the evening. And so I'm sitting in my room, looking out the window, watching the fireworks display, which was entertaining when you've been, you know, in a silent retreat by yourself, doing long-term retreats. I wasn't getting Dharma talks or, you know, I was in my own sort of little wing. And uh, so it was fun. And I was giving myself permission to pleasure, pleasure, and beautiful, beautiful, oh, whoa, whoa, fireworks, you know, they're designed to make you feel happy. And then it sort of crescendoed at the end, and this big crescendo, woo, 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 and all these children, and there must have been 500 children at this particular gathering of kids, all these little kids were shrieking and whoopeeing as they do, in the dark, across the valley, accompanied by this incredible aerial display. And the joy of 500 children's voices was so joyful that I was like, my heart was leaping out of its chest, you know. It was just the weird, it was a simple little thing, but the effect on me, I know I'm carrying on a bit here, but it was pure love. You know, I loved their joy. It was we were one and the same. I was completely open, completely into what their simple joy was, such a simple, pure thing. So what had happened in the journey along for me is before that part had happened and I was getting very quiet and I was beginning to get friendly and I was beginning to be able to really relax. When I went from doing concentrating practice and becoming deep, deep, deeply quiet, 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 and then began to see, began to actually practice insight practice as we've been teaching you, without any guidance, because my particular teacher doesn't actually say very much, she just goes, see what you see, kind of thing. Um, I was seeing, for instance, very clearly that what I thought of as me wasn't, you know, it was just a habit, 
a habitual lens and it didn't have to be there. And when I was laughing with the children, it wasn't there. There was no reference of myself. There was no self-centered reference. There was no consciousness of myself. There was just joy. And when the cows are running to greet each other in the morning, the same thing. And it became really obvious with no effort that the lens of my me, the lens that was referenced to myself, was not substantial. It was optional. And it worked, and it was a reference, and it was a way to function, but it wasn't oppressive. It wasn't true, in that it, wasn't, it didn't have to be there. It didn't have any power. It was just a way, a lens, a perspective. And I also could see, and then this is another retreat, or too late or whatever, um, I had this other very extraordinary experience for me. It sounds simple when you say it, but when you have them, you know, it's like, wow. Um, I had um, this very deep, quiet period in a meditation retreat at Spirit Rock. And um, again, this kind of absencing of the sense of me completely just wasn't there. There was just this quiet inside. And um, there was this realization, and I was actually walking down the hill towards lunch, funnily enough, at Spirit Rock. I remember the, probably the, tell you the spot in the sidewalk where I was walking. And I looked up and something, a realization came to me completely that no meing, when I wasn't me referencing, when there wasn't that self-reference at all, that lens wasn't functional, there was just awareness and stuff was just flowing as we've been describing. I completely understood that's what metta was. That's what metta is. That's what the Brahma Vahara, this is a state of being in a divine state. That was a state of divinity. There was no me. There was nothing but caring and connecting and responding. And there was nothing but that. And I'm like, so it comes together in that the dismantling of the sense of self, however we do it, we, you know, we, we, that suggestion that Pascal gave last night is like, how about I am Heather who is meditating? You know, I am Heather, I am, I. And just let go, let go, progressively let go of the eyeing is a way of this, for this to happen. It happens in all kinds of ways at different times for different people. And uh, in my case, spontaneously, but the, the thing for me, it was the realization that the absence of meing is the presence of love. It's the same thing. And when there is me, Love is inhibited. It doesn't mean it's completely absent, but it means it's not flowing because I'm in the way. The eyeing is the problem. And it's a whole different feeling of what love actually is. The love that's a spiritual love is the connecting of the heart with others, you know, with each other, the merging, the no boundaries, the nothing between. And the thing that's in between is that sense of me. And not just the sense of me, but you know how that sense of me can grow. So how about a moment when somebody blames you for something? Rightly or wrongly? <gasps> There's a lot of me all of a sudden. <laughs> it's like I'm really big. You know, and if it's repetitive or if you're challenged by a scenario where you keep regularly come up against somebody who's irritated by you or criticizing you or undermining you, there's like how dare they do this to me, you know? Like, what about me? And I have feelings. And, you know, it's big when it's challenged, right? When it's attacked or whatever, hurt. Not seen. It gets really... Because the thing is, the sense of myself, this sense of 
who I am, starts off, well, I don't know about starts off. I know babies. I was a midwife. I delivered lots and lots and lots. I don't know how they start off. I think they start off, I don't know, they come up with, they come out with something. They don't come out blank, that's for sure. But early, there is a wondering in children, and then they learn pretty quickly, and they start modeling. And I believe our society, our nuclear family society, doesn't give them the fact that they need to be told that they're lovely and blessed over and over and over and over and over and over. And in a family like mine, that wasn't abusive exactly. I mean, my mother was scary in her anger, but, and she slapped and yelled a lot. But it wasn't deeper than that. But there wasn't enough times and people and laps to reassure me and to say, you're worthy, you're fine as you are, you're okay. And so that hunger for that is deep in there. And we've all got similar and various backgrounds, and some of them painful, painful, really clearly inadequate or with particular wounds and experiences. And, and not just early childhood, but the way we've developed and you know, the choices we've made and whether we felt included or excluded, belonging or not belonging, and, you know, the struggles that so many people have. What the effect of it is, is the sense of, I'm not okay. That separate sense of me isn't okay. And when that's the case, and in those moments, there is hunger. When there's that hunger, the, the, my executive assistant, I call her, my busy little mind, gets busy trying to get whatever it is I think I need. 101 hula hoops at once. Actually, for me, it was like 360. I'll never forget the day I was like six and I could actually do 360. I was count proving to myself, right? Not just 100, keep going, you know. That's because I needed, I was so in need, I was hungry. Once my voice at Guy House was starting to give me something friendly, the hunger started to abate because of the the benefit, the benefit, the goodness, the kindness is nourishing. So I, of course, due to my experience in my life and my practice and the journey and the things I've learned, I, I believe very strongly that metta, kindness, appreciation, acknowledgement, friendliness is pretty first on the list of what we need. Once there is some sufficiency of of being okay, then the sense of me isn't going to be so busily getting and chasing and fixing and rearranging and being afraid or being doubtful or doing all the things that the sense of self does, the ego does. You can't just say, stop it. Don't do that. It will do that because it needs to, because it needs more. It's still hungry. It's still a crying baby. It needs still soothing in whatever ways we can find to reassure it. And there's different ways. And so when there's more reassurance, acknowledgement, connection, gratitude, whatever, however we do that, kindness, connecting, belonging, beauty, huge amount for me, beauty, sweetness. When I began to realize in my practice, I didn't have to say that pleasure and happiness was for other people. I began to let myself enjoy being relaxed, enjoy being centered. The joy nourished and soothed and calmed down the hunger so that the sense of me could 
relax. I didn't need that lens to survive. I didn't need that striving to get somewhere to be good enough, to be okay. It wasn't required anymore. And so it began to fall away. Not because I did anything. I didn't abandon anything. The need was less. The caring superseded it, if you see what I mean. And so then the understanding through this particular doorway of, of being with, that was what predominated rather than the selfing. And so it was, it's really obvious, you know, I see this again and again now, not we, I mean, it all makes sense to our intellects. We, can, we already know this psychologically, but this, this is, I'm speaking about deep realizations internally, the known experiences we've been so emphasizing on this retreat. Um, and so it's not just the sense of me, but whenever that sense of me is threatened, is insecure, is doubting, is, you know, been hurt or is worried or something, whenever that's exaggerated, um, then our functioning, we're identified with being somebody, with being somebody who's right or who's not good enough or who's different or who, whatever it may be. Who, um, and so our, our identification, our way of believing is this being with whatever that story or feeling is at the time. And that behavior is full the, the psychological space is full of I need or I'm not okay or I'm afraid or, you know, why don't you see me? You know, why do you look at me in this way? Or whatever the story is, whatever the, the pain is that's up. I call that stuff, our stuff. So our personal stuff, when it's up, it fills the space. It fills my psychological space. And one of, one of the teachers, somebody or other said, you can think of your, you can sort of think of your heart as this space that's like a chair. Well, if somebody's sitting in that chair, then someone else can't come and sit in that chair because it's already taken by the first person. So if your psychological space is full of, why don't they see me? There's no room in it for anyone else. When there's a lot of your stuff up, because we're triggered or we're upset, there is no room to love anyone. Loving is an absence. It's not a thing. Love happens when there is nothing there, when there's no thing in the way. We are these resonant, sensitive, responsive, f functioning, whatever they want to call it, masses of energy. Mass of energy, I think is what Goenka would call us. And so we actually respond, and we are empathetic, and we care, and you know we move towards each other and... And that happens. But when there's some stuff in the way, we can't do that so well because we're getting, we're full up with whatever our stuff is. So what hurts each other, what bumps into each other, what causes the distress that we all experience isn't the goodness, isn't the caring, the tenderness, which is all lurking. It's just that it's been covered up by stuff temporarily. And so it's like I just see this stuff filling up my psyche and my heart, and that's what bumps into people. So if I offend somebody or I say something that I, I don't really, it's not really skillful, it's because I can't see that person because I'm blinded by my fear at the time or need or whatever it is, my reactivity. That's how we cause harm. It's the lack of love. Love is 
at that moment squished out by this need or this fear or this doubt or this, you know, believe in getting. And so all the harms we do, all the ways we exploit, you know, the way we use, the way we dismiss, the way we assume, it's because that's my stuff that's assuming, that's exploiting, that's hungry. That's not understood, you know. And as it's attended to, and as it becomes conscious, which is what we're doing in our journey, it's attended to. It doesn't have to be fixed. You aren't bad. It isn't wrong behavior. It's not, we don't have to get rid of it. We want to just attend to it and say, oh, the baby's crying, you know. I know I'm saying babies partly because I'm a midwife, was a midwife, but I've got a three-month-old grandson called Van, as in Van Morrison. My son's childhood music was Van Morrison. <laughs> That's not his main reason for choosing it, but it's just to explain the name. Anyway, so baby Van cries sometimes. And one of the things I do is I get to see him a lot. And so I get to help feed him because he's part bottle fed, part breastfed, And so I get to do the bottle part. And so uh, it's very much in my consciousness crying babies. Of course, that's the example I'm using because it's very fresh. He's just three months old. He's very sweet. Anyway. He, when he's in need, he's in need. And when, as soon as his need is met, he's sweet again. We're exactly like that. <laughs> so simple. <laughs> and so we need to tend to the need. We need to recognize that it's a need. That's why we want to be in touch with how it feels in here. Oh, jealousy. That's what's happening. So we can name it. Oh, yes, I was jealous. Then immediately... That uh, Arjun Sumedhu said this at, at uh, Pascal reference the other night. Jealousy feels like this. Take it from, oh, I realize what's going on, I'm worried. Oh, and it feels like this. This is how, this is the baby crying. This is how it cries. And so when you have the baby crying who's jealous, who, who whatever it is, is insecure, what, what does that baby need? Well, what that baby needs is like, oh, I see you're so, you know, it's so hard. It needs some sympathy, it needs some encouragement, it needs some, sweet, it needs some meta, right, something. You don't have to figure this out and learn it and write down and, you know, like, try and remember what someone else said. Tend to the crying baby. And that will soothe her. And when she's a little more soothed, there's more space to understand, to see more what's going on the activity of desperation subsides and all of this confusion subsides and there gets to be more space in that psychic space, in that heart space. And then it gets quieter and then... So for me, loving is a space. Loving is a receiving of another. The less me there is, the more it's possible to receive another, the more thou, the more sacred anything. The more me there is and my agenda, the less there is anything sacred. There's no room. You go down there on the beach and you're sitting there wallowing in, in your own, you know, embarrassed whatever thing that you did and you put your foot in the mouth when you had this conversation with somebody. You don't see the sacred bay, you know. You don't hear the owls. Or you, there's no space. 
It's all about me and my agenda and my need. But once there's quietness down, which you're all experiencing many, many moments of, it's exquisite. It's the same old bay, everything's the same, but there's space in you for it. The more of that spacious quieting, the more we love, the more it seems beautiful. Isn't that how it works? It's a, So, Wendell Berry, American poet, says, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. But what have we done to defile the earth, you know? What are we doing? We're not seeing the earth as a sacred energy. We're seeing it as something to be seen in terms of me. I want this, I'd like that. If I get this, I can sell it for that and I can have a swimming pool. Yay. It's it's imposing the utilitarian, utilitarian view of self on when it's not imposed upon something sacred. It's not like the thing is or isn't sacred. It's all in the viewing, how we hold it. And the harm that we're doing to each other, to our planet, that we always have done whenever we've done it, is simply because there's an absence of love, which is simply because there's a presence of selfing. It's the same thing. We can either love or let go of self. It's the same thing. Come at it whichever door you like. Srinizagadat Maharaj, Indian mystic, last century, said, when I see with wisdom, I see that I am nothing, just as we've been teaching. When I see, it's another lens, when I see with love, I see that I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. Both are the same truth, exactly. I am nothing and I am everything. When I'm loving, when there's real love, there's all there is is this space for everything. Everything is everything. Everything belongs. Everything's connected. There is love. So it's a truth. And when I see with the wisdom that ego is, doesn't really, it's just a lens, it doesn't exist. There's nothing, I'm nothing. But the, it's not just that there's nothing. When there's no self, it isn't that's the end of it, you're annihilated, that's, that's it. How dreary is that? First we struggle away and then we die and that's it. Life's a drag and then you die. <laughs> that's not the story. We can see through this endless trying to improve in order to feed this hungry, needy, unsatisfied, insecure, vulnerable, sensory mass of energy because it's so challenging, because of the eight vicissitudes, because it's going to end in old age sickness and death and we're going to lose everything. So of course we're crying and hungry. It's completely understandable. But we're addressing that hunger by me-ing. And it will never, ever work deeply. Temporarily, band-aid, absolutely. Yep, new car, fantastic. Whatever it is, you know. Got a, I've got a heat pump now, so I don't have to have a wood stove in the winter if I don't want to do all that axe work, which I enjoy doing. That's good. You know, it's all good. <laughs> and... It'll never be deeply satisfied by the self's agenda. It's impossible. 
The hindrances, wanting, aversive, agitated, dull and drifty, collapsing, doubting, they're just meing. Greed, hatred, delusion, the three coverings over, the, over what is freedom is another name for meing, myeing. I'm wanting, I'm deluded, I'm not seeing, it's the, that, that behavior. And when the Buddha taught, his first teaching he taught, the Four Noble Truths, this is what he's saying. He's saying, when we are crying babies and we need something, we're struggling, we're miserable, and we're, because we really think we need something. In moments when there's no needing anything, there's contentment, there's no struggling. There's also no meing. First and second noble truth, wanting something and feeling un- uncomfortable because of wanting, crying baby. Third truth, no more wanting, no more meing, no more struggling. Freedom from struggle. It's so, that's it. And then the fourth of the four truths is to help ourselves move from one and two to three. I've said this so many times in this room, to help us make that shift over from the crying baby to the no me is by practicing the Eightfold Path. By seeing this, by seeing life in these terms, Meing or not meing, love or not love, full up with agenda, with greed, with hatred, with delusion, with busyness, with fixing, with trying, with wondering, with asking, with all of the planning and all the busy stuff we're doing, or not. Living carefully, living wisely, speaking with some consideration and respect, sila, and training the mind in meditation. Keep on doing this. We'll keep finding ourselves increasingly not crying, (laughs) not hungry. I read a book, I don't know if I read the book, but I remember seeing the book long ago, 25, 30 years ago, by a man called Gerald Jampolsky. I don't know why I remember it. Love is letting go of fear. Right? And it's the same, it's exactly the same thing. When the, f- when the fear is, then there's me. And I've got to, f- uh-oh, better do something, got to find something. When that's not there, there's love. It's the same Love isn't something. It's what's happening when there's no doubting, no meing. It's a verb. It's an experience. It's a quality. It's a quality encounter. Remember that night, first night when Pascal's talking about that encounter with the horses? That's what he's describing, isn't it? In that moment, total availability. Quiet, receiving, loving, trusting, That's the sacred moment. Rumi says, um, 
out beyond wrongdoing and right-doing there is a field? I'll meet you there. Out beyond the good and bad and trying and getting and evaluating and getting rid of, let's go beyond there into the space where we actually will love each other. I use the word in love, I often use the word capacity. We both are using this word, capacity. The only thing I don't like about the word capacity is I kind of, it makes me have an image of a, something like an oil tank or something, <laughs> rain barrel or something, you know, like a tank, container. But it's more, my, my, my sense of it is, is more like a, uh, a womb, you know, something like a, a fleshy kind of container. Tanisara, one of the colleagues have asked, um, talks about something womb, awakened womb or something like that. I don't know if that's her language, something like that. Feminist language, I know. But when I use the word hold, I think of the, the capacity to actually receive another being, to receive, you know, the end of that particular nest and its eggs, that thing that's been sitting on the side there that we keep walking by, to actually let that in and let that touch and resonate. That's what I think of as loving. It's capacity, meaning it's a spaciousness that can really grow. Sometimes it can really shrink. Sometimes it can be like walled off, you know, depending on my vulnerability inside there. But a piece about the teachings of the Buddha, it will, I'm not trying to make it sound simplistic, but reassure us, uh, is the sweetness and beauty of it all. The, one of the pieces that's profound about this is that this capacity not this tank, but this, this capacity to be receptive, this capacity to care, this capacity for human hearts to resonate with other, to merge, to undifferentiate, to expand from the isolated self-concern, moi. This is boundless. This is, this goes on endlessly endlessly expanding. And so one of the words the Buddha uses, and this is important for us to, to just let in the possibility, um, this isn't about goals, is the, when he's talking and uh, describing the uh, metta sutta, the sutta about loving kindness, it's boundless, like a major feature of the capacity of a human heart is radiating upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths and outwards and unbounded boundlessness. Bound, unbound. We talk about freedom, liberation, because there's this confining when there is me and my concern. It's small and it can be very tight and it's separating and it's like being bound up. And in a moment when, it, when it's not there, meeting that horse on that night, it's like somebody took straps off your heart or whatever, it, you know, whatever the chains for some of us, you know. It's, it's an expanding compared to the contracting. And that capacity of expansion can be so extraordinary. One of the features of one of the states that's, uh, not one exactly, but a characteristic as one can go into very deep concentrated states is uh, the feature of boundlessness. Just be, not just stillness, but fast. 
And one of the practices which um, Analio offers when he's teaching, who's a, who's a scholar monk, some of you know uh, the Satipatthana uh, book which he wrote, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, his PhD thesis on uh, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Um, he actually teaches in person and uh, sat a couple of retreats with him. And the, uh, the emphasis he places when he's teaching metta is to observe where we want, if we think of this feeling of well-being or kindness or inclusion or um, you know, the lack of self-judging, you know, the, the opening of the heart and the radiating of this feeling of friendliness, observe wherever we might find a limit to that. I'm really going to be friendly with these people, but that's as far as it goes. If I don't know them, forget it. You know, if they're from that country, forget it. If they're, you know, I'm not going to notice them if they don't have a home, forget it. Or whatever, what do we do? Where do we bring up a false boundary? Where do we fabricate some limit to this, which in fact is an, an unlimited, it's possible for it to be unlimited. And so see, it's the selfing which, which adds the boundary, places a limit somewhere, practice that expanding, boundless. And it doesn't mean I've got to love every single, you know, worm in the, you know, in the field. You know, I've got to do everything. It's a setup of another goal. It's more to see and to learn how we, how fear, you know, or doubting my capacity is going to set up a boundary. It's going to contain something. And see how we do that and see how that that comes up. And when there's, again, a sense of ease or a sense of no crying baby, there doesn't need to be a boundary. We see that that we think there's a need. It's not true. You know, we're afraid. And so we, oh, no, no, I can't be more loving. I don't have enough for that, you know. Just watch that, the play of the, the guardedness how we impose limits, and, and and we get tired. I mean, not saying that we're supposed to love everybody and endless be a doormat for everyone. You know, we are as worthy of care as everyone. No, not to be just in service and give our energy away forever. We have to also, we're just as sacred as any other. So we have to, ourselves have to be included in this kindness and care. I mean, just not to be sacrificing. Mm, boundless. Yes, yeah, so I think yeah, a message that I'm giving you is m- some of my explorations on the path weren't through, the majority of it for quite the foundation years wasn't through thinking about it and through listening to talks. I didn't listen for some reason that much. I just kept practicing and practicing and looking at my own experience. Partly, I think, because I learned I had to do it, you know, as a kid. I had to figure it out for myself. And so I didn't, I didn't have a relationship of, oh, tell me, I'm going to listen to you, in a, you know, a trusting teacher or, or mentoring. And so I didn't really read books or anything like that. I just kept on sitting. And so I have this strong faith that your own inner teacher is inside yourself. And if you keep looking, you'll keep, you'll keep seeing. Is, is, is That's the number one teacher. You don't need to hear all the words and try and figure them out and make sure you've got it. You know, it, It'll all make sense in its own way. I have very strong 
faith, of course, because that's what's been my, my style. We'll keep on talking, nevertheless. I'm not going <laughs> to... Just because we love to talk about it and because it's so... It's helpful for us and it's helpful and different people and we never know who will learn what. But I'm just, I just want to reassure you to trust your own inner teachers, your own inner uh, understandings. Um, and another thing about love, because this is really about love, really, uh, is that we, we're all the same and we all love um, belonging and connecting. And we don't all want to do it all the time, and some of us need to be a lot more solitary than other people, and so on. But the, the needing to feel that we're included and to belong, and the wounds that are when there's exclusion and separation, so deep, so deep. This is um, John O'Donohue, who's one of my favorite poets, an Irishman who died about, I don't know, 15 years ago. We can have all the world has to offer in terms of status, achievements, possessions, yet without a true sense of belonging, our lives feel empty and pointless. And that's about the heart and connecting, you know. However, we, you know, we know all the studies about take, take puppies into the care homes, you know, and the children's homes and you know and, and the healing gets really increased when there's some lived even just plants for goodness sake you know birds there's all kinds of wonderful studies about we had an aviary in our you know old people's home and everyone was singing and visiting each other and they were all stuck in their rooms isolated before the aviary was there and things like this you know because we're respon- we are responsive and yes we're we're also stardust and we're all the elements and we're all just force fields of energy, and we are separate individuals who are vulnerable. Both are true, absolutely true. On that level, on the level of being the individuals with the stories and the histories and the quirks and the wounds, we need to belong. And when there's sufficient sense of, not pointlessness and loneliness, but some sufficient sense that I do belong in the animal of things, you know, in the... What's that lovely poem by Mary Oliver about the wild geese calling to you and announcing your place in the, in the world, you know? That we do have a place. We are worthy beings to be here, to have a life. You know, we do contribute something. When there's sufficient of that, then that separate guarded need to be somebody, to be seen, to be okay, can relax. You know? Only then can it relax. So love comes first, I think. Mm. Yeah, gone. The letting go of the me. It isn't then just nothing. Then, then everything is there. I'm going to finish with um, another poem by John O'Donohue. This is called Invocation for Presence. He's got this lovely Irish way. Awaken to the mystery of being here. He an, was an, an Irish and was a Catholic priest at one point. So he has some of the language, but um, beautiful being. Awaken to the mystery of being here and enter the quiet immensity of your own presence. Have joy and peace in the temple of your senses. Receive encouragement when new frontiers beckon. Respond to the call of your gifts 
and the courage to follow their path. Let the flame of anger free you of all falsity. May warmth of heart keep your presence aflame. May anxiety never linger about you. May your outer dignity mirror an inner dignity of soul. Take time to celebrate the quiet miracles that seek no attention. Be consoled in the secret symmetry of your soul, and may you experience each day as a sacred gift woven around the heart of wonder. Thank you. Mm. It's a path of the heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.